Sound design. You're saying it doesn't matter if I whisper or scream, it won't change the potential acoustic gain of the system. Is that correct? That's correct. And, you know, the math, there's this out. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the Professor of Design and Production at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, Jason Romney. Jason, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hi, thanks for having me. So Jason, I definitely want to talk to you about theatrical sound design and finding microphone feedback, but before we do that, what is one of your favorite tracks to listen to after you maybe get into a new space and uh, get the sound system set up? You know, um, I spend most of my time, you know, in my own work outside of teaching, doing primarily musical theater. And my main focus usually when, when trying to figure out a system for musical theater is delivering the voice. And so I find, you know, playing really complex tracks can sort of distract from the stuff that I'm really trying to figure out. And so years ago, I kind of started this ongoing process with my graduate students of recording uh, vocalists singing musical theater stuff, acapella, in close to an anechoic environment as we possibly can, using various, you know, lav mics at different parts of the head. And, you know, a little, I actually have an Earthworks mic we use for it. We started by doing that in a film soundstage here on campus at School of the Arts. Uh, and actually, just this last December, we did kind of phase three of this thing where we actually got into a real anechoic chamber uh, at North Carolina State University and did a bunch of these recordings. So I have a whole slew of anechoic recordings of vocalists just singing a cappella into actual musical theater loft mics. And that's what I play. So when I think I've got the system tuned and it's, it's what I think it's going to be, that's what I put on and I can hear a voice coming out of the system, you know, in a way that it will sound like what, you know, it should sound when we really do the show. And that way I'm not worried about things or trying to get, get distracted by things that don't matter for what we're trying to do. You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, how the subwoofers are interacting with the voice because I'm never going to put the voice through the subwoofers. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what I play. That's my, I've, I've got my own track basically that, that's, uh, that I do. The one I use the most is, is it's a opera singer actually, but she's singing, uh, someone to watch over me acapella. And it's, it's one of my favorite ones. And I'm, I know it really well now and play it all the time. There's a saying old says that love is blind. Still we're often told, seek and ye shall find. So I'm gonna seek a certain man I've had in mind. Looking everywhere, haven't found him yet. He's the big affair I cannot forget. Only man I am. 
as you're talking, I'm just realizing, you know, I just published this interview with Alex Oana from Audio Test Kitchen, and he has all of these recordings that he did of different instruments in anechoic chambers, because then that's what he used to then play them back and basically re-record them through different mics so he could get all these tests for his database. Right. And um, I should ask him about that, too, because it would be cool to have some of those, although those aren't really, those are recorded with, like, really nice... Studio microphones, and we probably, for live sound, want things that we're, we're actually going to be using in the field. But it would still be cool to have some of those recordings, because those would be totally clean and reflection-free as well. And you could put those back to the system and see what those sound like. Yeah, because, I mean, the idea that, well, the original idea that got this started was, you know, of course, everyone likes to play tracks, you know, through the systems, that's what you got, and you don't have the, the performers there yet. Um, but I, I've always worried about bringing in recordings and then listening to them through the system where those recordings sort of have their own acoustic signature that they're bringing with them that then gets coupled with, you know, the acoustic signature of the room I'm in. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right, between what is in the recording and what is happening in my system and in my room. And so trying as much as I can to kind of strip out all of that bias from the recording so I can focus on what I'm doing as opposed to what somebody else did in a recording studio. It helps a lot, I found, because then I can experiment with reverb, right? If I if it's if it's already dry, I can start start playing around with my reverb programs and things like that and and know pretty quickly if I've got what I need. Sure. I, I think everyone has that first experience when they start out in audio and you do some recording in a small room, like you, most people start out in a bedroom, and then you do some mixing in there as well. And things sound pretty bad and you discover that sort of the the problems of your room that you recorded in are then exacerbated when you listen to it again and i hear that all the time in this tiny little office that i have where i'm doing the podcast yep. and it never sounds very good and then later i just learned that later i listen to it on headphones and i'm like oh it's actually fine it's just all these problems where i'm hearing them on top of each other stacked right yep okay so Jason, we'll get back to talking about some technical audio stuff. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about your career journey. So how did you, how did you get your first job in audio? So I, the first job I would say that in audio was when I was in high school. A friend of my father's, a, a work colleague of my father's, owned a, a kind of a side business as a it was sort of like a DJ business where you, you know, he would send out somebody like, you know, somebody young with a sound system and a, at the time, a big, you know, several sort of cases of, you know, CDs in jewel cases, right? Um, and you'd go out and you'd, you know, provide music for a party or a wedding, you know, whatever it was, a, a high school prom or something like that. And I, I, you know, growing up, I was always the kid that was taking everything apart around the house. And I, I studied music and played the piano and all these things. And, and, it was, you know, right up my alley. And so anyway, my, my father arranged a introduction with this guy and he hired me on, uh, to start DJing for him. So that's when I, I learned sound systems. I learned how to put a system together because we had to like, you know, take it somewhere, unload it and put it all together. I learned that was when I learned what power amplifiers really were. <laughs> I was like, why is this, what is this big heavy thing that I keep having to like haul over here <laughs> and, and nothing works without it. I don't really understand what this thing does. So that that was my first real job and where I was getting paid to do something with sound and I think it really started the wheels turning for 
my interest in ultimately becoming a sound designer because I was obviously I was you know I was interested in the equipment side of it. It was like that was kind of fun. I could make really loud sounds and all of that, and that was cool. And there were lots of buttons and knobs and stuff like that. But as I kind of the first few gigs that I did, of course I was sort of shadowing somebody, and this guy that had been doing it for a few years, he sort of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, and we did a few uh, gigs together. And he started showing some really interesting stuff. He said, "Okay, look, I'm gonna." He, he would sort of point to like some people over on the wall, you know, that weren't off, you know, that weren't out moving or talking to anybody. He says, I'm going to get them off the wall. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he would do these things, right? Where, and, and where he would sort of play certain types of, of tracks, you know, in a certain order that, you know, he had kind of learned that he could slowly coax somebody into the party, right? And, and I was fascinated by that. Where I thought, whoa, like you just totally manipulated those people. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that was fascinating to me. Like, I love that. I just couldn't get enough of that. And uh, I think that's the, the part where I really started thinking about what it means to be a sound designer who's not, who's designing the content and telling a story. Where I was like, oh, I can actually say something. I can use the things that I create and the music that I that I create or choose or play or the, the sounds that I create or choose or play to, to really communicate something and affect people in what I now believe is a somewhat unethical way. <laughs> but I, I prefer not to manipulate people anymore. I prefer to let people react however they would like to react. And, but at the time, you know, I learned really quickly that I could manipulate people. This is so interesting because... Um... It can be so hard as a sound engineer sometimes to get feedback and know if we're doing a good job or a bad job. And what does that mean, like in the in the short term or the long term? And and how do we get hired again and be successful in our career? So you're a comedian and people are laughing and you're like, oh, it's working. Yep. I'm doing yep. it. And you're a DJ and people are dancing. You're like, okay, things yep. are going well. I'll probably get hired again. But as a sound engineer and and it's a little bit harder to tell if if things are working. It, obviously, if you come back and if people are coming back and complaining, like, "Hey, I can't understand anyone," and I'm sitting over here, or uh, it's too loud. People, kids are covering up their ears or something. That's how we used to tell in the circus that it was too loud. But um, uh, you've just thrown another variable in there, which is, you know, I want this to be working, but also I don't want to be manipulating people. So hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, we didn't discuss this beforehand, but. What do you tell your students about how do you know if they're if you're doing a good job as a sound engineer like what is the feedback loop so that you put something you do your work and then how do you like make changes and, and make improvements now now I will also say that there are a lot of people who disagree with me about this a lot of sound designers who disagree with me about this but my my feeling is that I, I think it's fine to say whatever I want, whatever I think and feel about the piece through my work. But I also want to present my work in a way that allows others to think and feel and react however they want to. And I don't, I don't necessarily want everyone in the room having the same reaction. I don't want everyone in the room crying. And I know, I know a lot of sound designers who that's what they want, right? It's like, I want to make everybody in the room cry or I want to make everybody in the room laugh. That's not my goal. I'm interested in everybody having a natural response based on their life experience and, and what, you know, influences them and, and all of that. So the way that I know and what I tell my students is, is, you know, in theater, hopefully you get some previews where you get to try this thing out on an audience while you still have time to make changes and tweak it. 
And I love that period of time when you think you've got something, you bring in a small audience, you do it for them. And I spend my time watching the audience because I know the show backwards and forwards. I mean, I, I could, I know every minute of it. So I don't watch it. I watch the people. I watch the audience. I see when they react. And when I start seeing everyone react the same way, I think, ah, am I imposing something here? Like, am I doing something that's making them all feel like they have to react that way? And if I am, I want to fix that, right? I want to make sure that, you know, I can, I'm not imposing that. Now, maybe, maybe everyone's having a natural response and it just happens to be the same and that's fine. I just want to make sure that I'm not the one doing that. But when I see, you know, a person over here laugh and a person over here sort of get uncomfortable and a person over there scream or something like, you know, or those are dramatic examples, but that's when I'm really, that's when I, I get excited. I think, okay, great. We're doing something real now. People are reacting based on their own life experience and their own biases and their own whatever. That's what, so that's what I look for is those previews. If you don't get the previews, gosh, that's hard because you just don't know, right? You're, you're, you're in the show, you're, you're doing tech rehearsals and, you know, you, the jokes stopped being funny like two weeks ago and no one knows, you know? <laughs> sure. So, it's oh. really hard to know, will this work? And then what is your definition for work? And your definition now is, uh, yes, sometimes I want everyone kind of reacting the same and we're having a community experience. But in general, I want people to kind of be reacting in their own unique personal way that has to do with their life experience. Right. And so there might be a cue for thunder in there. And then you put in thunder and everybody's like, it's really loud. and Everyone's sort of shocked. And I'm putting thunder in here because I know you have a recording. You have, you have many recordings of uh, thunder that right. I read about on your database. Uh, you know, then you might also try like, what if there's an obvious cue for thunder and I put in the sound of a chicken right. and then like a few people are confused, but then a few people laugh and a few people are disgusted or whatever. And then it, everybody's kind of having a personal experience for whatever their relationship is with like right. chicken and surprises and whatever else is going on on stage. Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, you know, for a lot of people, the sound of crickets is very relaxing and soothing. It's, you know, it reminds them of nighttime and going to bed and all that kind of stuff. For me, it's very unnerving because as a child, I would be, uh, my mother would put me on timeout in the, this laundry room that was next to the kitchen in our house. And my sister and I called it the cricket room because this room, there was crickets in it. And when we would go and sit in this room and she'd shut the door and we'd have to sit in this room, you know, it sounds, you know, way more abusive than it actually was. <laughs> <laughs> But, it, you know, it was, it was literally yeah, you just were a bad kid. We get it. It, it was just a timeout, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. we're sitting there and, you know, we're hearing these crickets chirp, you know, in this room. And as little kids, you know, you start your imagination starts going wild and you start seeing the coat hangers come alive and things like this. So to this day, you know, the sound of crickets does not relax me the way that it does with other people. And so whenever I have a director says, oh, we should put some crickets here to sort of like, you know, calm down the mood and everything. And I'm like, okay, let's try it. It's not going to work. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, you can't control that stuff, right? You can't, you, you can't control the way people are going to react. And I know a lot of people who try to control the way people react. And it is possible to some extent. But I just think that's the easy way out. I think the, 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 the much harder way is to just do something that's true and honest and and open and lets people have that whatever that natural response is and whatever their natural response is is fine sure so i guess the non-manipulative honest way to do it is just to do whatever you think works for you and yeah. i've had this discussion with uh, other colleagues about 
why some people are good mixers. And there's this idea that that sounds true to me, which is that you will be a successful mixer if your hearing is somehow similar to other people's, or there's a large enough group of other people that hear your results that agree with you. So if you just mix something for yourself and it sounds, and you're not trying to be manipulative and you just make it sound good for you and other people agree with you, then that seems to be one of the attributes of a good mixer. They, yeah. have, they seem to have like a, a taste that is right down the middle with some category of people. Yeah, and I, I do talk about that with my students a lot. I say, look, ultimately, one of the things that people are going to pay you for is your taste. You know, I mean, hopefully, one of the reasons people bring me back is they like the way my shows sound. And there are times when, you know, my style is not right for a particular show. And I either have to evolve my style for that particular project, or I have to find somebody else to take the gig. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that I try not to overthink what the audience is thinking and feeling. I, I try to just be honest, tell the story, and then be completely okay with however they react. I do a lot of theater for young audiences, and kids are the best audience because they are a completely honest audience. Open book. Yeah, you can tell, you know exactly when you've lost them, you know exactly how they're feeling about any moment. And you know, when I first started, it took me a while because there were times when you know, we were trying to be really like serious and, and have this like dramatic moment. And then a kid would like shout out from the crowd is like, hey, that's not, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> you, that's not right. You shouldn't do that to her or whatever. And uh, at first I, I was getting really uncomfortable. It's like, somebody tell this kid to stop yelling out there. And, I, and, <laughs> and then eventually I realized, you know, no, actually that is exactly what that kid should do. Because whatever is happening in this scene is exciting that, that kid. And and that kid is reacting to what's being, what, you know, he's being presented with in a, in a really great way, you know? Yeah. So by all means, call out, you know, tell us that you can see the wires. Tell us that you don't like what's going on. Tell us that you think that's funny, you know, and all of those reactions are fine and they're great. And, and that's what we want is engage, is to engage people, give some, somebody an opportunity to experience something that excites them in some way. All right, Jason. So a lot of things have happened in your life. But I was wondering if you could maybe take us to one event. Can you think of something that's happened in your career that, that you feel like was a turning point? So what's one of the best decisions you feel like you made to get more of the work that you really love? You know, I think that I've made, I, I, I couldn't think of a single one decision, but I can think of a couple things that have helped me an awful lot. One is that I... I made a decision pretty early in my career that my career was not going to be my social life. And I think working in theater or any form of entertainment, I mean, the hours are long. You tend to be working when everyone else isn't working and vice versa. And I saw so many people around me where, you know, their work and their, and their social life were basically the same thing. And I just decided, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to be friends with the people that I work with. And I, sh I absolutely want to do good work. I want to get along with these people. I want them to appreciate and, and, and like working with me. But I don't need to go out to the bar with them after the show. <laughs> I don't need to hang out with them, you know, when we're not working. I don't need to go golfing with them. I don't, you know... And 
that has helped me immensely because it allows me to make decisions about the work that I do without having to worry about how that's going to impact my friendship with the people around me. I can instead just focus on what do I have to do to do the best work that I can do in a way that is the most collaborative and the most you know, supportive of, of everything that's happening in the room. So that's sort of a deal I made with myself is that my, I'm going to have, I need a social life, but my social life is not going to have anything to do with my work. And that has helped me so much. I see a lot of people who struggle a lot because they're having a really hard time balancing that thing, right? Their friend, their best friends are the people that they're sitting next to at work. And, you know, that makes, you know, you have to make some hard decisions sometimes when you're doing work. And that, that is hard for a lot of people. So that's, that's one. I think the other uh, real, another big turning point for me that it was sort of like an aha moment uh, for me as a, as a sound designer was when I first started graduate school, I designed my, my first show as a graduate student. It was The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And, you know, I did what I thought was a fine job with the show. And the David Smith, who I, I'd come to study with, he came and, and watched one of the final dress rehearsals. And he and then I sat in the back of the theater with him that night and to kind of get his thoughts. And, you know, and he gave me a couple notes here and there about some of the cues and stuff. And he says, I think generally, though, I, you know, I've, I've got this is my main note. He said, you know, I just watched this whole show. And having watched the la this last three hours, I, I know, I feel like I know what the director thinks about this, this play. I can look at the set and I think I know what the, what the set designer thinks about this play. I'm looking at the costumes and I think I know what the costume designer thinks about this play. And I listen to your sound and you've created a lot of really great stuff. It's appropriate. It, it fits. It's, you know, really well executed and well mixed and well edited. It sounds really great and everything. But I have no idea what you think about this play. Wow. Yeah. And that was like a moment where it was just like, boom, mind blown. And <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. What do I think about this play? And because I, I, and he, and he went on to just sort of say, look, yes, I mean, you know, as, as a sound designer, your job is to, you know, tell the story, serve the director and their agenda and collaborate with other people and everything. But, you know, ultimately your name goes on the poster right next to the director and the other designers and, and the producers, like you're, you know, not even the actors get their name on the poster most of the time. <laughs> it's like, like you get top billing on this thing, which means you had a voice in creating what this thing is. And if you don't use that voice for something, then what's the point? You know, why are you here? If you're just here to just push the buttons, pull the sound effects, throw the dog bark off stage left, ring the doorbell and get your paycheck and go home, then why is your name on the poster? <laughs> uh, yeah. it, was a, it was a big moment for me where, where it was like, oh, I, I am also an artist, right? Mm -hmm. I am a storyteller. I'm not, you know, yes, I'm an engineer and a technician and a musician and a designer and all these things, but I am also a storyteller and I am also an artist and I have a voice. And 
that was a big turning point for me where I just, ha- I mean, it reframed the entire approach that I, that I took to everything I did after that. And so that, that has really, really informed me over the years. Yeah. And, I, you know, a, gu- a good example of this is a, a show that I just did a couple years ago. I got to do uh, Matilda, the musical at the Children's Theater of Charlotte. And, and Children's Theater of Charlotte was, was sort of, I don't know, one of the first two or three professional theater companies to get the rights to actually do it after the, after the Broadway and the tour. And so there wasn't a lot to go on. I mean, you know, we eventually after a show has been done a lot regionally, you sort of get a lot of, there's a lot of good research you can do. You can talk to a lot of other people that have worked on it. I really didn't have that luxury because there hadn't been a lot of other people that had worked on this thing. And so I read it, I listened to the music and all this. And the thing that really stood out to me was there's these two songs in the, in this play. One are called, one's called loud and one's called quiet. And the, the, the song called loud is sung by Matilda's mother. And she talks all about how, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think and what you say or, or how smart you are or whatever, as long as you're the loudest voice in the room, you know, people have to pay attention to you and you, it doesn't matter. The substance doesn't matter. And all this comes, this is her whole song. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then in act two, Matilda, it, in, in, if you're familiar with the show, she has this moment where she sings the song quiet, where, you know, this, the, the other, the other kids at the school are sort of being confronted by the headmistress and Matilda sort of, it has this moment where kind of time stops. Right. And then she goes into this song called Quiet, and she sings a song about how when she's in these moments in her life where she feels like, you know, everything is just being piled on her and she's getting overwhelmed and buried, she kind of retreats into herself and finds this sort of like stillness and quiet inside of her own mind and her own body. And that brings her peace and strength and all that. And she comes out of that song you know, singing the song with everyone around her frozen in place. And she, when she comes out of this song about how she finds power and strength in, in the quiet moments of life and the, and the quiet reflective moments of life, that's when she turns around and discovers that she has telekinetic power. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I just thought, Oh, that's just amazing. Right. And as a sound designer, it was just like, yes, yes. And I, the, the thing is that, and I tell my students this all the time. It says, listen, our job is to make stuff louder, right? We actually don't have any technology to make things quieter, right? Every piece of technology that, is, that has been invented for sound engineers is designed to make stuff louder. You don't have anything that can make something quieter. And so everything we do is just a, about making something louder. And so if, if you've got a problem that something is too loud, you don't have a knob for that, right? Now, it could be that you have made it too loud. And therefore, you could make it less too loud, right? But if it's already too loud all by itself, you can't do anything about that. And But I realized, you know, I have to figure out how to get quiet. Because that was so important to me, right? I mean, I, that, that part of the story was so important to me. And I said, if that song is not actually quiet, mm-hmm. <laughs> then we will lose this, this, the meaning of this moment. And so I put... I, you know, I played all my cards on this because I said, what do I have to do to get that song quiet? Yeah. How'd you do and it? Ironically, I opened the pit. <laughs> wow. What, wait, what does that mean? It seems like it would make it louder if, yeah. Right? Why did I know. That make it so this was the problem is I figured out the way, because normally at this performance space, 
they cover the pit and we mic up the, the orchestra and we play everything out of the speakers and the monitors and everything. And you would think that that would control the loudness of the, of the orchestra. It does not because, you know, the second you cover it, that means nobody can hear it. Mm-hmm. The audience can't hear it. The actors can't hear it. You can't hear it. And so you start having to put this sound out of all kinds of sound systems, right? And mm-hmm. there's, it's coming out of 20 loudspeakers on the stage and 50 loudspeakers out in the house. It's everywhere. You can't get rid of it. And so even to do something quiet, it has to be coming from everywhere. And I said, you know, that's the way. That's how I'm going to do it. If I can get them to open the pit, then I can push my front fills back, you know, or upstage. I won't have all this monitor bleed. I won't have, have to worry so much about putting all the sounds of the, the speakers. So then when we get to that moment, I can just tell the orchestra to play it quietly. <laughs> and if they can play it quietly, then the actor can sing it quietly. And then we can mix it quietly and we can, right? And so I had to, I played all my cards, all of my political capital I burned <laughs> to get them to open this you really pit. Had to talk, you really had to do a lot to talk them into this. Because it didn't make any sense. Do this. Okay, it didn't make yeah. any sense, right? Yeah. The thing I was telling you is like, we need to open the pit so that we can get this show quieter. <laughs> and they said, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I know it doesn't make any sense, but listen, I'm the expert. I'm telling you, you got to do it. And okay, it, so did it work? It worked. It was amazing. Okay, great. It was amazing, <laughs> right? I mean, we got to that moment and everyone like turned to me and went, oh, you were right. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yes, I know. And, uh, and it was awesome. just, it was great, you know, and, and in the previews when we did it, like the audience got quiet, you know, even, even kids and stuff, they all got quiet and they're like, what is going on? You know? And everyone was whispering, you know, and it was great. It was so brilliant. And I would never have thought of that. I mean, that was, a, that was ultimately a technical challenge, right, that we had to overcome. But it would never have been something we would have even considered if I hadn't decided that I had something that I felt and believed about this story that I wanted to make sure got communicated. And so that's, that's a really extreme example of this thing where we had to do something really big that actually cost a lot of money to, to do. But... Uh, it was really that came from me as as the sound designer who wanted to make this point about about this song about finding power in peace and quiet. You know that you don't have to scream, you don't have to be loud all the time. You know, I just found it was so powerful. So I think that has really informed a lot of the work that I do. That's so great. So ju- I just want to sum up again to say, like, I'm not here to make the doorbell ring and the dog to bark off stage left. I'm here to like share this idea or I'm here to share like this transformational moment in this work. Yeah. So Jason, you've been teaching for a while and so you meet a lot of people who are doing things for the first time. And I thought this would be a perfect opportunity for you to talk about some of the the themes you see of people doing things for the first time. And so I use the word mistakes here, but really it's just like people doing things for the first time and they think, oh, this is the way you do it. And that's ends up not getting the result that they want. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to theatrical sound design? So I give my students this speech every year when they, when they, all of my incoming students, I give them this speech and I say, okay, look, you know, you have, had a lot of experience in your life so far that have led you to this moment, right? That have got you to the point where you're ready to like really focus and learn this thing. And that's great. And you should be proud of that experience and, and those things you had, but 
what you need to realize is that a lot of what you think you know is wrong and or is incomplete or is based on assumptions that you haven't proved or is based on information you were given by someone who who also did not know what they didn't know. And I said, the best thing you can do is just be proud of that experience that is behind you now. And then we're going to forget that it ever happened. And we're going to start over because the biggest mistake I see my students make is when they rely too much on their previous knowledge. Because what happens is when, when you get yourself into a rough situation on a, on a show and everyone's, you know, something's not working, everyone's looking at you, the director's shouting at you, and no one gets to work until you can solve this problem, the natural reaction is to just retreat into some sort of process that is comfortable to you. Like you, you find these ways to get through the day. And, you know, because when you didn't know what you were doing, when you had no clue and you were starting, you just sort of like discovered these things by accident. Like, oh, here's a way that I can like get people to stop shouting at me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, and, and it wasn't necessarily the right solution, but it got you out of a mess once. And therefore it's like, okay, that's, that's my go-to now. That's my solution. Uh, and so I, I see my students do that a lot, you know, where they'll, they'll call you know, they're for whatever reason, they're terrified of me. I don't know why, but, uh, eventually they'll pluck up the courage to actually call me for help, you know, and I'll come over <laughs> and see where they are on their show and I'll say, okay, what's going on? And they'll say, oh, we're having this problem and this and this and that and all these things. And, and I'll start looking around and I'll look at what, like the system that's in there and I'll look at what they've set up on the board and everything. And in, invariably, you know, every one of those times I look at it and I say, that's not what I told you to do. That is not the way I taught you to do that. This is not what was drawn in your paperwork. How about we do the thing that was in your paperwork, do the thing that I taught you to do, so, and then let's see what happens, right? And, and what had happened is they had retreated into some previous knowledge and ignored the new knowledge because the previous knowledge was comfortable to them. And I think that's the biggest mistake I see people starting out with, you know, is that you sort of stumble into these quick fixes of things before you really understand what's going on. And then you miss forever in the future, the opportunity to learn a better way. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard to sort of unlearn things, but it's critical that, and hopefully you, you have a mentor or somebody that can help you do that. If you don't, it's, it's almost impossible to challenge your own paradigms. But I think it's the biggest mistake I see new people make. And so how do you, how do you break out of that? I did an interview with the creator of the sound bullet last year, and he sort of talked about forcing yourself to, to practice methodical troubleshooting when normally you just want to jump to one thing. Cause you think, Oh, I think it's over here when, and then you waste a bunch of time because you're not being methodical. And so if you practice forcing yourself to actually go from like point A to B to C in the signal chain, then you get better really at figuring that stuff out logically and, and faster later on than if you just sort of like guess and then you end up chasing your own tail. So yeah. what, what is your guidance then to your students to like unlearn this stuff or, or, or force yourself into like better, better habits and, and better, more creative processes? Well, the first thing I do is I, I exercise, you know, really tight control over the tools that they use, right? I mean, we, we're in a fortunate situation in our program where we've got a pretty, pretty good equipment inventory. 
And students will, if left to their own devices, they'll just use the same thing every time because they know how to use it. It's comfortable to them. They use the same console in every show, uh, whether it's the right console for the job or not. And uh, so one of the things that I'll, I work really hard to do is I, I force them to not use the thing that they know. You know, I'll say, no, you've, you've used that Yamaha M7CL on every show you've ever done in your life. Today, you're going to use the Digico. Well, I don't know how to use the Digico. I'm like, well, you'll know by the end of today. so that's one thing is i sort of is sort of force yourself into using tools that are unfamiliar to you because when you're using a tool that is unfamiliar to you it forces you to think about how it works and how sound works and you have to read the manual you have to ask questions from other people and so I find that's the quickest way to overcome your own previous knowledge biases and things like this, to force yourself to use a tool you're not familiar with. The other thing is I am a firm believer in paperwork. My students do a ridiculous amount of paperwork. And they always say, I was like, no one does this, this paperwork out in the real world. And I'm like, yeah, and this isn't the real world. This is school. And, uh, <laughs> and I say, the problem is I can't look into your head to find out if you've thought about all the things you need to think about. Show your work. So the only way I know how to figure out if you thought about everything is to get you to write it all down. Yeah. And so like I make them do these ridiculous patch plots where they make a spreadsheet that shows every single connector in the entire system, mm-hmm. right? Connected one to another. And they say, this takes us forever. I'm like, I know. But if you do this now, then you're definitely going to know how that sound system goes together. And you're going to realize before you get into the gig that you need you know, an XLR to quarter inch adapter or, you know, such and such a turnaround or something like you're going to find that out now, as opposed to five minutes before you have to make sound come out of the system. So that's another thing that I find really helps is to take the time to sit down and do paperwork, draw it out. What am I trying to do? If you can draw it out on paper, you'll find a lot of these problems really quickly and you'll realize, oh gosh, there's a better way to do that. So those are the two things I find a lot. Force yourself to use something new do paperwork. <laughs> nice. All right, Jason. Well, let's go back to talking about tools that you're not comfortable with and like breaking out of your patterns and your biases. So at this year's Live Sound Summit, you gave a presentation called Potential Acoustic Gain, Why EQ is Not the Answer to Feedback. So um, one of the first things you say in that presentation is that the tools people use first to combat feedback are really the tools they should use last. So yeah. um, first of all, what are the tools people are using first to combat feedback? Um, mostly EQ. You know, I see so many folks. I mean, I, I honestly don't understand why graphic EQs still exist, right? It doesn't yes, make any do. sense to me in the world. No, I don't I, know. I, I, I understand, <laughs> but it's stupid, right? And it's because people buy them. But, you know, that's it, is people use this graphic EQ to, to combat feedback. And I get why, you know, it's... And if you don't really understand why feedback happens, then yeah, it makes sense to sort of like whip out an EQ and fix this because you're realizing there's this problem, right? There's this frequency in my sound system that is, you know, running amok. And, you know, I now I have this tool here that allows me to remove a frequency. So if I have a frequency that's misbehaving, I can just get rid of it, right? It's reasonable. The problem is that you're treating a symptom there. You're not actually treating the problem. And so like using an EQ to notch out feedback is sort of like trying to cure the flu with Tylenol. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, okay, that might make you feel a little bit better, 
your sore throat will go away, your fever might go down, but you still have the flu. <laughs> sure. Which is interesting still- because what they teach you in sales and marketing is that, you know, people buy vitamins and they buy aspirin. They don't buy cures as much. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why the GraphQQ still exists, right? Because people will buy them. It looks like it's a solution. It gets them through the night. And, and that's fine. Um, the problem is that, you know, you can do a lot of harm <laughs> to a lot of things that are important to you by, you know, immediately jumping over to that GraphQQ to solve your feedback problem. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that you get into a challenging situation there's feedback. It's a scary thing. It's something that like pisses everybody off. It's a, a sure thing to like make you not get hired again. Mm-hmm. And so you want to go to, so you end up falling back on whatever your previous experience was or your preconceived notions. Okay. So we've talked about this tool. This is what people are jumping to first. So what tools should they be using instead if it's not EQ? Well, I think to understand that you have to first understand what is causing feedback and what Feedback happens when the sound from the talker or the instrument or the whatever that's making the sound, when that hits the microphone at the same level as the sound from the loudspeaker that is amplifying that sound. When those two things hit the microphone at the same level, that's when feedback happens. Because when you have two identical sounds that are arrive at the same place, at the same level, but slightly out of time, <laughs> then we know that creates some comb filtering. But the other thing that will happen is that there will be some number of frequencies where that difference in time corresponds with a certain period or wavelength for a given frequency. Therefore, those frequencies are summing together perfectly in level and at some zero degree phase relationship. And whenever that happens, it gets louder, right? 60 dB boost, boom, for that frequency. And so now that frequency comes out of that loudspeaker again, 6 dB louder, hits the mic, 6 dB louder again. Boom, 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 boom. It loops, loops, and loops. And it gets louder and louder and louder, which is why feedback gets louder the longer you let it go. And so that's what's actually happening is that you have sound coming out of the loudspeakers that's making it back into the mic at the same level as the sound of the thing that the mic is pointed at. So if you really want to solve that problem, you've got to get that level differential larger. And that's a geometry problem. <laughs> that is not an EQ problem. Solving that is, is, is geometry. It's a, it, the reason that you have that problem is because things are in a physical relationship in the room that is causing the sound from the loudspeakers to hit the microphone at the same level as the sound from the talker or the instrument or whatever. And if you understand that, then you'll understand that, oh, well, I could make the sound from the loudspeaker quieter at the microphone if I could get the loudspeaker farther away from the microphone, right? right? Or I could make that, I could make those two things different if I could get the microphone closer to the thing that's making the sound. Then that thing would be louder there, but the, the, the level from the loudspeaker would not have changed. And so now it's, there's some differential there. So there's various things that you can do to create that differential. It's not that you can't have any sound from the loudspeaker hitting the mic, it's that you need a, a significant difference in level between the, the natural sound and the amplified sound hitting the mic. And if you can do that, you won't have feedback. So let's just take an aside here related to level and time arrival. So is this why, 
Well, let me, let me take a step back. So I studied、um, studio sound, and I remember one of the things we learned in studio sound, since we had a tiny bit about live sound, is just like some tips and tricks. One of the first things I, I heard is that if you add some delay to a signal, you can. Uh, reduce the feedback or try inverting the polarity. And so, from what I'm hearing you say now, it sounds like maybe that won't actually help because if I add delay, the signal's still arriving at the same level. And so, what's going to happen is that I won't eliminate the feedback, it'll just change to a different frequency. Yep. So, yeah, if you invert the polarity, yeah, that frequency that was feeding back won't anymore, but now an octave above that will. <laughs> and, and it's likewise if you change the delay. That's, you know, that just means that now there's a different frequency that's going to lock into some zero degree phase relationship because of its wavelength or period. So it might solve your problem for that specific moment, but I guarantee you 10, 15 seconds later, you're, you push the fader and some other frequency locks in and feeds back. Guaranteed. So then coming back to the question, you're saying that EQ is not the first tool you should be reaching for when you have mic- dealing with microphone feedback. And instead, the tools you should be work- reaching for are placement, aim, and directivity of your, you know, your receivers and, and transducers, your speakers and your microphones. Is that the case? Right. Well, and I think the,、uh, the reason that people are reaching for the EQ is because they didn't do that work bef- ahead of time, right? That it's, if the system's already up, everything's in place, you're doing the show and it's feeding back, at that point, you don't have a lot of options. But feedback can be predicted. There is math that lets you predict this.、Um, you can plug in the, the system configuration and the distances and everything into a mathematical equation, and it will tell you exactly how much gain you'll be able to get before it feeds back. And now there's a lot of variables that aren't being considered in all that math. And so, you know, it's give or take a few dB, but you can get a pretty good idea of, of whether you've got a problem or not.、Uh, and so, if you can figure that out ahead of time, then yes, then it's easy to move the loudspeaker if you haven't already hung it. Right. <laughs> But if you've already hung it up in the air and you've already teched this show and there's already, you know, the mics are already in place and everything and the show is going now and, you, and that's now the time you've started worrying about feedback, yeah, your only option is going to be to reach for that EQ and then you obliterate your finely tuned frequency and phase response. So,、um, to illustrate this, you have these really great flash demos on one of your sites that, that people can play with. And, and just to describe it to them, You have a few different variables that you can change. You can change like, the talker's distance to the microphone. You can change the、uh, speaker placement. You can change the. What's the other thing you can change? Well, so you can, you can move the listener around, you can move the talker around, you can move the microphone around, and microphone you can move the loudspeaker around, right? Okay.、Um, and, and then, sorry, you can, also, you can also play with the directivity of the microphone right, and the loudspeaker. The、uh-huh. And then you see a result. It's very, very cool. You see like, how、mm-hmm. much, what is the potential gain? Of the、right. system. So I, I don't know, it, it doesn't really do great justice to it for us to, I don't know, d- describe that too much more right now, but it's just so eye opening to be able to see that. So if people want to play with that, you know, again, I'll put a link to that in this,、uh, in the show notes for this podcast. But during your presentation at Live Sound Summit, it was just so cool to like see you <laughs> just in real time being able to change these factors and see how the potential gain would change in the system. Yeah, and, and I, have to, I have to admit that I did not create that, that flash demo. That was、uh, created by a colleague of mine. I, I, I published a book. I wrote a book with two other people Jennifer Berg, who is a computer scientist at Wake Forest University, and 
Eric Schwartz, who at the time was a graduate student of mine. And Eric is, you know, one of the smartest people I know. And I kind of hired him. We, we had a research grant to write this thing. And, and I hired him on the grant to kind of help us out. And he learned flash programming as part of that. And I had been talking about this. I mean, I had this idea for a long time. I was like, you know, like if there's these mathematical equations you can read in the books that tell you, well, you plug this in, you can get your game before feedback, but it's kind of cumbersome math and it takes you a little while. You want to change your variable, you have to go back and run it all again. And I was talking to Eric one day and I just said, it'd be really cool if we could somehow like just plug that math into CAD or something and be able to move the speaker, move the mic or something and, and have it recalculate the results. And he's like, I could probably do that in Flash. And I said, well, let's try it. And so he did. He put it together and he made it. And it was great. So we put it into the book. And it got to a point where Eric had contributed so many of those kind of just amazing tools to the book that we eventually had to credit him as a co-author because we're like, we can't, in good <laughs> conscience, take credit for all this work that he did, you know? So I think that the, I, I will take credit for the idea, <laughs> but I did not make that. Eric, that was, that was absolutely his work. But, and it is really, really useful as a teaching tool and a learning tool just to kind of really understand, okay, what can I do to combat feedback sure. that doesn't involve obliterating my frequency and phase response with a graphic EQ? Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about that in your, your presentation. So I just picked out some moments that you know were surprising for me and, and that I thought would be fun to talk about. So you say, the graphic EQ is nowhere near as surgical as you imagine it to be. And this is such an interesting moment for everyone, the picture that you have in your head of what you think a graphic EQ does, what you think it does is pretty different than the first time you actually measure one and you see right. the results, you're like, oh, wait. So how surgical is it? What is a graphic EQ really doing? Yeah, I mean, of course, the answer is it depends. But if it's a third octave graphic EQ, which is probably the one you see the most, you know, you've got, I mean, the great thing about a graphic EQ, the reason people like it is that you can look at it and get some idea of what's happening with the frequency response, right? You've got your low frequencies over here, your high frequencies over here, and you move them around, and that's great. But that one slider that has that one frequency on it, that you've got a slider that says one kilohertz, okay? And you can move that up or down. And if it's in the middle, it's, it's not changing out of that frequency. If you put it up, it makes it louder. If you put it down, it makes it quieter. And the screen printing on that fader has a single frequency. <laughs> but... In reality, that's, that little slider, that fader, is manipulating a lot of frequencies. It's called a third octave graphic EQ because that slider represents a third octave filter. And what that means is that it's a third octave filter because it's a third of an octave between the 6 dB down points of the filter. So you've got a peak, and that's, where the, that's the frequency that is labeled on screen printing. And then you measure the distance between the frequencies on either side of that that are 6 dB below that, and that's the defined range of the filter, okay? the prop. So first of all, you're not just notching out one frequency, you're notching out a whole range of frequencies in a third of an octave band, but that's just between a 6 dB down point. You also have a whole lot of other frequencies that are also being manipulated beyond that 6 dB down point. So that one little slider that you are using to remove a sine wave is actually, you know, manipulating an octave, octave and a half worth of frequencies to some extent. That's a lot. 
And to and, sort of help people visualize this, I ha- find it helpful to sort of imagine keys on a keyboard, if you're familiar with what a piano looks like, and you can sort of like reach across an octave, which is 12 keys with like one hand. And so if you imagine a third of those, that's already four keys, and now you're saying it's even larger than that. So now yeah. you start to get a sense of what the, the size of this is if you think about keys on a keyboard. Right, absolutely. It's way, it, it, it does way more damage to your frequency response than you imagine it does. You're, you are taking out a big chunk of your frequency spectrum in order to remove a sine wave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We killed it. We killed it. So the, the moment in your presentation that is sort of like mind melting for a, a lot of people live on the event is when you said... Gain before feedback is independent of the level of the talker. And everyone's like, what? That's crazy. You're saying it doesn't matter if I whisper or scream, it won't change the potential acoustic gain of the system. Is that correct? That's correct. And, you know, the math bears this out. We, we, uh, if, if this was, you know, if we had video here, I could do the math and show you. But basically, you can do, run the math in a way that considers how loud the person is talking. And then you can run the math in a way that, completely excludes that information and you get the same result as far as your acoustical gain goes. So that tells us that it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter how loud they talk, your gain is the same. And what we mean by that is that, you know, we define acoustical gain or gain before feedback as the difference perceived by the listener in the audience between when the sound system is turned off and when the sound system is turned on. So if we decide not to show up for work and they try to do the show anyway, and the sound system never gets turned on, presumably the audience will hear something, right? There's people on that stage doing stuff and they're singing or playing instruments and those things are making sound and that sound will get out to the audience somewhat. They'll hear something. Hopefully, if you've done your job well, you might show up to work that day, turn on the sound system and they hear more, right? So the difference between what they would hear without the sound system and what they hear with the sound system on, that's your gain. That's what you gained by putting a sound system into the room. And that gain is fixed, right? The amount of gain you can get before the system feeds back, unless you change some variable system like that, that is a fixed amount that is independent of how loud the source is. So if the source is, if your gain before feedback is 20 dB, that's, you know, not bad. It's not awesome, but it's, you know, you can get through the night with only 20 dB of gain. That just means that if they're talking really quietly, you can make the audience hear something 20 dB louder than them whispering. If they are screaming, you can you are able to let the audience hear something 20 dB louder than them screaming. But them changing how loud they are doesn't change the fact that you can only add 20 dB to that scenario. So your gain is independent of the level of the talker or the instrument or whatever it is. But what is true is that in some cases, in small rooms, if the source is naturally louder. You might need less gain in order for the audience to be able to hear it and understand it. But in a really big room where there's, you know, if, if your listener is 300, 400 feet away, you know, it doesn't, you know, they, they, could, they could be talking really loud or really quiet. It doesn't matter. They're not going to hear and understand anything. It's all on you anyway. Yeah. So, so that's where the misconception is, is, is we say, oh, well, you know, if they get loud, if you could just get them to talk louder, it wouldn't feed back. And it's like, no. That's not a problem. Uh, if, if that's what's happening, it, you, you're, you're basically using the acoustics of the space to solve a problem with your sound system. And that 
doesn't actually change anything about your game before feedback. <laughs> okay, one last thing about this. You said microphones do not exhibit the same directivity at every frequency. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, microphones have this polar pattern and we think of like cardioid, super cardioid. Okay, I understand that. But you're saying that that's not the same over frequency. So tell me a little bit more about that and then how does that affect my game before feedback? Okay, so the first thing to understand is microphones are the same thing as loudspeakers. They're just, I mean, a dynamic microphone is just a small loudspeaker. It just, it, you just wire it backwards, right? <laughs> You're just using it backwards. So it's the same thing. And we know that loudspeakers are not directional in the same way for every frequency. Hopefully you know that. If you don't, you should know that. <laughs> that just because the spec sheet of the loudspeaker says that this is a 40 degree vertical does not mean that it's 40 degrees for every single frequency. And that is not a laser beam, right? There is, it doesn't mean you don't have any sound past 40 degrees. You still have lots of sound past 40 degrees. It's just it's 60 be quieter at the 40 degree angle. And that 40 degrees is some arbitrarily chosen number by the manufacturer that they put on the spec, spec sheet. It's like some sort of average of some range of frequencies that they cared about. But if you really look at what, what it does and look at the polar plots, look at the ease plots and things like that, you'll see, okay, it's vastly different from frequency to frequency. Microphones are no different. Microphones are different directivity per frequency. And there's a lot of reasons why. There's some science behind that that we probably don't have a lot of time to get into, but it has to do with the size and diameter of the driver, the way that it's vented and things like that. So yes, you could get a cardioid microphone and that will exhibit a certain directivity on average, but that's going to change for, 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 from frequency to frequency. Now, particularly, it becomes problematic at the low frequencies because it's re we know it's really hard to control low frequencies. Low frequencies tend to be omnidirectional because in order to control them, you need really big stuff. <laughs> you know, if you want to control 100 hertz, you need something that is 10 feet big. You need, you need either the back to the future, you know, driver that is a 10 foot diameter driver, or, you know, this is another reason why we like line arrays is because, you know, you can make, you know, a lot of speakers act like one really tall one, and then you can control a hundred Hertz, but it, a microphone, you know, the biggest diaphragm on, on, an, on even a large diaphragm microphone is what an inch, inch and a half or something. It's not 10 feet. Yeah. It's not 10 feet, <laughs> not even close, right? <laughs> There's just no way that it's going to be able to control that low frequency. And so, uh, you can, yes, you can use microphone directivity to your advantage and gain before feedback if you can get the, the area of the microphone where it is less sensitive pointed towards the loudspeaker, then, okay, yes, that's now the sound from the loudspeaker is going to be hitting the mic, and that mic is going to be less responsive to that sound at that angle. But that really helps you mostly at high frequencies. You get down to the low frequencies, those low frequencies are still largely omnidirectional, even for that cardioid microphone. So you still have to figure out what to do about that. You can't just rely on microphone directivity to solve your feedback problems either, which is why the low frequencies are always the ones that feedback first. So I, I think in uh, a lot of times in practice or, or on stage, we don't see this happen immediately. It seems like it's the high frequencies that feedback first, but that's because we've already taken actions to make sure that it's not the low frequency. So we have yeah. um, high pass filters on our microphones. We have high pass filters on our stage monitors. And so mm -hmm. it, we might sort of lose touch with the fact that those would be feeding back if we didn't have that in place already. Absolutely. 
Okay, Jason, tell us about the biggest or maybe most painful mistake that you've made on the job and what <laughs> happened afterwards. Well, I, well, you know, I, 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 I can't think of a specific thing, but I, I do remember early in my career, I was doing um, summer stock opera and was put into, you know, this position of being the in-house sound designer for this opera company and barely knew what I was doing. I mean, I was still halfway through my undergraduate college training. I hardly knew anything, but for whatever reason, I mean, it was summer stock, you know, they, that's what happens. They bring in college students who will work for cheap and they give them responsibilities that they're not ready for. And, uh, I was no exception. I was not ready for it. And they gave me this budget and they were like, you have to solve these problems and do the sound. And, you know, I remember a couple of scenarios that in those couple of summers where I did that, where I had somehow got into my head that if I only had this certain fancy thing, whatever it was, then I would be able to solve a, a problem. Okay. I had heard about cool microphones. <laughs> you know, I, there was this, we were doing Carmen and the, the maestro wanted, you know, the six chorus people off stage singing at the end to sound like, you know, a few thousand people in the stadium. Okay. You know? And I thought, oh, well, you know, if I got a good microphone and maybe some, you know, reverb or something, you know, in the mixer, I can make that happen. And I made the, I made the company, you know, rent a C414. Okay. For, you know, what to them was a good amount of money. Sure. And because I thought, oh, that's a nice microphone. It should sound good. And, and then I can do this, you know, reverb effect and it'll be fine. I didn't understand what I was talking about. And I'll never forget the first time I tried to do it. It just sounded awful. I oh, mean, no. it was awful. For a million reasons, it was awful. Uh -huh. But, you know, of, of, of course, you, uh, and now I know that, that that's not possible. Like, you can't even do that thing. Like, you can't make five people sound like a thousand people live. You can't do that. <laughs> um, especially not if, it, if all those voices, if, if the five voices are coming into one mic, like, you just, like, you can't do it. It doesn't work. So now I know that, but <laughs> I didn't know it then. Sure. And I remember the first time we tried to do it, you know, the maestro sort of turned around to me and looked at me and said, <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh no, <laughs> that's painful. Yeah, that's got to yeah, hurt. And I was like, I know, of course I was really offended by that, you know, sure. cause I hadn't really even on my, I haven't, I hadn't come to the realization myself that I had screwed this up yet. I still was attached to my idea and thought I was doing something right. And it took me a while to realize that I was doing nothing but, you know, harm. And so there was that and a couple of other situations like that where, you know, I, I had read something, you know, in an article or something and heard about some cool little whiz bang box and, uh, oh, if I could get that, then I could solve this problem. And I realized that I didn't actually know what I was talking about. And, and I made somebody spend a lot of money and didn't solve the problem. And, and I lost a lot of credibility because of that. Oh, wow. And that is a lesson that I, that I take to heart. And I always, I tell my students this all the time. I said, never, ever, ever tell somebody to spend money on something unless you know for sure that they will hear every dollar that they spent. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be justified. Can't be right? invisible. Wow. Yeah. If you tell them they have to spend $1,000 to buy you this fancy box, they had better hear $1,000 worth of better sound because of it, or you will lose all of your credibility. Wow. 
So what's the end of that story? Did the did the mic go back? Did you figure out a solve the problem? Did you get fired? Oh, what what happened? I didn't next? get fired. You know, I mean, listen, they were. You know, it's not like there was anybody else that would do the job. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a summer stock opera company in the middle of nowhere. The uh, you know we fooled around with it a little bit more and played a little bit and, and ultimately just kind of had to punt. We just sort of said, okay, it's never going to sound like a thousand people. The best thing we can do is just make it sound a little bit farther away. We can add a little reverb to it. And that was about it. Yeah. And it would never, it, we just, it would never sound like what we now nowadays, what I would do, of course, is I would just record it, right? I would record it. I would double it. I would get a whole bunch of people to sing. I would mix it all up. I would make it sound like thousands of people. We'd click track it and play it, you know, out as a recording, but you know, those were concepts I didn't even know existed at the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jason, I've got some questions from Facebook. Anthony Morano says, what separates UNC from other theater and design production programs in the country? What do they do differently that sets them apart? You know, I think I can, I mean, I can speak for the sound design program that I run and in saying that, you know, there are a few, a handful of schools that I think are, trying to, to teach sound design at, at the same level that we're trying to do. And I think they all have a slightly different approach. Uh, and I think the thing that sets us apart is um, David Smith and I decided a long time ago that we wanted our students to have jobs, basically. It's the mission statement of our institution, the North Carolina School of the Arts is what it used to be called, and now it's called the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, but it's been around for 50 years. It's the first public performing arts conservatory in the country. And the mission statement of the institution says, we exist to prepare people for professional careers in the arts. So if we're going to all this trouble to train all these people and send them out, and then they're not having professional careers in the arts, we're failing at our mission. And so the thing that we decided early on is we want our students, we want to deliver on that for one. And we looked at, you know, what is the typical kind of career path if there is a typical career path for anybody working in live entertainment, everyone sort of has their own little path they carve out. But the first handful of years, it's like you're trying to figure out what that is. You're trying to figure out what your groove is and what the thing is that you do. And you end up having to just kind of take every gig that comes to you, right? I mean, if, you're, if you have to turn stuff down because you don't know how to do it or whatever, then it's gonna, you're going to have a much harder time those first few years because you, to just kind of pay the bills, you got to take everything until eventually you start figuring out what you're really good at and what people will continue to hire you to do. And then you kind of get your, your area that you have the thing that you do and your special secret sauce. And, and then you get your, your career out of that. But at first you have to take everything. And we, we saw, you know, in some cases, students coming out of some of the other programs that, that studied that had put a lot of their energy into training students for a particular part of the industry, a particular skill set within that, which meant that the students coming out of there, that was the thing they felt comfortable doing. They sort of had to turn down jobs that weren't that. And I decided, and David and I decided that we didn't want that for our students. So we made a conscious decision for our curriculum that we want our students to never feel like they have to turn down a job. And so in order to do that, we're going to train them as broadly as we possibly can within this area of specialization of sound design, which means I want, if they get offered a job to mix a musical, I want them to feel like they can take that job. If they get offered a job to compose music for a play, I want them to feel like they can take that job. If they get offered a job to, you know, coordinate RF frequencies, you know, for, for a show, I want them to feel like they can take that job. So I want to train them as broadly as I can within that. 
Now that sounds great. And, you know, maybe people are listening here and like, well, duh, like, why doesn't everybody do that? And I was like, there's a reason everybody doesn't, that, doesn't <laughs> do that. Because we had to give stuff up in order to do that. And what we had to give up was depth. So, you know, if all I cared about was teaching you how to be a really great music composer for theater shows, then, and if I wanted to you to be the best at that in the world, then I would have to not teach you a whole lot about mixing shows <laughs> and coordinating RF and tuning sound systems. And I would instead spend that time teaching you more about composing music. And so in order for us to, to deliver on this sort of broad-based curriculum, we had to give up at some depth. So some of our competitors have the ability to take their students deeper into some subjects than we have the luxury of being able to do because we've made the conscious decision to diversify our curriculum. So our students, I've, we force them to just do everything, right? They, our students will come out of our program having mixed a show, having designed a sound system, having, you know, recorded sound effects, composed music, you know, laid cable, all of it, right? They do all of it. They could, if they had to, do the whole show themselves. Now, maybe not as, maybe there are parts of that that wouldn't be as good as somebody else could do for the, that little slice of it, but they can deliver the whole package at some level of competency. I think that's what sets our program apart is, is that broad-based training. Okay, Kiriakos says, what is his favorite digital console in terms of advanced Q and macro commands programming for musicals? Uh, so I, years ago, got my hands on a Dimitri system from Meyer, which if you know the history of that product, it used to be called uh, this LCS, there's this company LCS, uh, that started out with sort of like matrix panning kind of stuff and evolved over the years into, into what it is now. And, you know, I, it's, it's, we're kind of getting the vibe that maybe, you know, Meyer is, seems to be maybe losing their interest and continuing developing that, we'll see. I haven't seen the software update for a good while now. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the, you know, what their intentions are for that product, but what is amazing about it's, 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 you know, it's amazing and terrible all at the same time <laughs> because, you know, both LCS and then when Meyer bought out the company and took it over, they, but they, they had the same attitude about it is that basically they always say yes, right? So do anything when, anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, they're trying to put these systems on big shows. I mean, these are the systems that, you know, all the big Cirque shows were using yep. for a lot of years. I think they're starting to transition out of them a little bit, but a lot of big theme park shows were doing it. I know Jonathan Deans, uh, he was involved in the early stages of LCS, and he still uses them on his shows in Broadway and things. And, uh, you know, so you've got these big clients that are paying a lot of money and do these big shows. And when they ask you, hey, can it do this? You're going to say yes. Right. And so they always just say, yes, yeah, sure. We can make it do that. We can make it do anything you want, which is great, but also terrifying because anybody who's ever developed any kind of tool or product knows that you know, eventually you have to start saying no to people or the thing just gets so bloated that you can't use it. It doesn't make any sense in the world. And, you know, the Dimitri and QStation system is basically that. I mean, there's only a handful of people in the world that, that thing makes any sense to at all. <laughs> uh, and, it's, I'm one of them, apparently. Like, it just made so much sense to me when I looked at it. I'm like, I could do anything I want. Nice. I could literally do anything I want. Yes. And, <laughs> which means it basically does absolutely nothing when you turn it on. It does nothing. It doesn't even know it's a mixer when you turn it on. You know, it just thinks it's a stack of Linux computers. And you, you have to literally tell it every single thing that you want it to do. But it always says yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I love it. I love it. I use it any chance I can get. 
Yohai Zilber, um, which some people may, may know from Sound Gem and on your YouTube channel, which we should talk about a little bit more. Let's take an aside real quick. So Jason Romney yeah. has this amazing YouTube channel. I don't know how I discovered it, but uh, Jason, you put so many of your lessons on there and they are multiple hours long. And so if you can't make it to Jason's class and enroll in his school, <laughs> there's so many lessons on there about fundamentals, like just learning the decibel. You have like this mini hour, like three part series about the decibel. You have this uh, multiple multi-part series about uh, learning to use ease for doing designs and then uh, right. AutoCAD and like all this other stuff. So um, not really a question about that. Just want people to know that if they go to YouTube and search for Jason Romney, basically, you know, have hours and hours of audio and sound design uh, content to learn about. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people sort of like really kind of look at me funny. A lot of my colleagues look at me funny, like, really, you're putting all of your classes on YouTube. And the reason behind that is that I read a paper years ago when I first started teaching. It was a, it was a, it was a research study about sort of like how students retain information that they're given in a classroom. And it was the most depressing thing I'd ever read as a teacher because it basically said the students will only remember best case scenario, 10% of what you say to them in a class. Yeah. And, you know, one of the occupational hazards of being a professor is you sort of become enamored with the sound of your own voice. <laughs> and you start thinking that every word that comes out of your mouth is the most important thing that has ever been uttered. Sure. And, and so that was devastating to me because it was like, I never say anything in a class that I don't want them to remember. I so Everything I say is important. Yeah, yeah, right? Sure. So it was like, this was devastating to me. And so I immediately began trying to figure out a way to fix that problem. Like, I have to, that, this cannot stand. I cannot allow this. And one of the ways, the solutions I came up with was, okay, if they only remember 10% of, of what they hear in a session with me, if I could give them the opportunity to listen to it more than once, then maybe the second time they'd remember a different 10% and then the third time they'd remember a different 10%. Yeah, or they remember the piece that, that they need today, but then maybe a year from exactly. now they'll need another piece. So I first, I started just like recording them just with a, it was audio recording. I did a podcast, right? And I would put it out on a little local webpage for my students that they could just get and look afterwards. So when they realize that they didn't remember something, but they have this faint memory that I said something about that at one point, they can go back and listen to it and get it again. And then they don't have to call me and, you know, and feel embarrassed that they didn't remember it. And then slowly that evolved into doing videos and all of that. And I used to be really worried about, it. I used to password protect it and all of my students like could only get to it. So other people couldn't. And then I, I finally got to this point where I realized, what am I protecting here? Like, what is, what is it that I am so worried about people getting a hold of? What's the worst thing that could happen if someone that is not one of my students gets a hold of this stuff? Ooh, ooh, I know what it is. Ask me, Jason. <laughs> yeah. What is the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> it's, it's your own fear about, about someone seeing, about doing something wrong, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, maybe somebody will think I'm wrong. But you know what? I don't think I'm wrong, actually. I've been doing this for a while now. Uh, and if I am wrong, that's fine. Like, well, this will is tell the fastest way to learn it. it. I mean, I'm sorry Absolutely. I keep interrupting you on all these subjects, but like, this <laughs> is why I write stuff, you know, and it's yeah. terrifying every time I publish this podcast or I publish a video or I publish an article. And it may seem like I'm kind of confident sometimes now because I've been doing it for a little while, but, but that's why at the end of every one of my videos, I say, hey, if you see me doing something wrong, like, let me know. Or if you know a better way yeah. to do this, let me know. Like, this is my learning because I'm just, you know, as yeah. sound engineers, we're so often just working by ourselves. And so you need some way to like speed up that 
learning feedback yeah. loop. Okay, sorry. Continue. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I had to get over that. It was just sort of like, look, why am I so afraid of this? I mean, people are literally paying thousands of dollars to come and hear me say these things in a room with them. Why would people not want to hear these things, you know, out online? And and maybe if they don't agree with me, that's fine. I'm not doing it for them. You know, I'm doing it for my own students. There's, you know, I have nothing to lose by putting this out there into the world. You know, the best thing that happens is maybe people discover these videos and they learn something about sound. And is that the worst thing in the world? You know, no, absolutely not. And does that mean they won't come and study with me? No, it means they would be more likely to study with me. It's not like I'm giving the house away. You know, I mean, <laughs> they'll watch these videos and they'll like them and they'll want to come enroll in my program. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long story short, I record pretty much every class I ever do. I put it on YouTube. But know that I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for my students. And I just like put a copy of it on YouTube and you can watch it if you like it. If you don't think that, you know, the microphone quality was good enough or that the camera angle was good enough for you. It's just, you know, I don't, I'm not going to respond to those comments on YouTube because I don't care. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm not trying to make money off these videos, sure. you know, so you take what you can get, but I think the information is good and it's free. Awesome. So. Okay. So, uh, Yohai Zilber says, ask him about the secret Smurf army inside of our DAWs. <laughs> He'll understand. <laughs> yeah. So this goes back. I mean, I, so Yohai, uh, is one of the people behind uh, sound gym. And uh, we started, we, we moved our ear training class over to Sound Gym a couple of years ago with my sound design program, and, which is, you know, it's fun and it's, it's a great tool. And there's, but there's also, it's a really great community of, of, of sound people who sort of like talk and exchange ideas and stuff like that. And uh, I responded to a thread on there. This was oh, almost a year ago. Sound Gym had just released a new ear training game for compression. And there was a lot of people that were starting to play this game and they suddenly realized they didn't understand compression. <laughs> they were like trying to having to guess what the ratio is sure. of the compressor. They had to guess what the attack was and, these, and they started realizing, Oh wait, I don't actually know what these things are. And so somebody started, somebody posted threads like, I don't understand this. Like, can someone explain to me what these things mean? And there were a lot of, you know, things, comments who were making a lot of which didn't make any sense. And, and I had years ago had to figure out a solution to how to explain this because I have to explain it to my students. And compression is, is a really abstract concept that is really difficult to wrap your head around. And David Smith and I, who, who teach together, kind of between the two of us, have came up with this, this way of talking about it where, uh, you know, and this is ultimately what I shared on Sound Gym that got everybody so excited is, is said, you know, I like to imagine that there is a little smurf inside the box you know, inside the compressor. And what in, in order to understand a compressor, you have to first understand that a compressor is just an automatic volume knob. That's all it is, is a compressor just rides the fader for you. That's all it does. So if you've got a sound that you're constantly, you know, riding the fader up and down and up and down to control the level, you know, you can let a compressor do that work for you. And so to understand how the compressor works, just imagine there's a little Smurf inside the box and the Smurf has got the hand on a fader. And the Smurf is listening to the sound. And when the sound gets too loud, the Smurf turns it down. And when the sound gets too quiet, the Smurf turns it back up. And, and that Smurf will just do that forever inside that box. And, uh, you know, and then you can sort of take it on to sort of say, okay, well, the threshold is how you tell the Smurf when something's too loud. So you just say, if anything ever gets louder than this, turn it down. That's your threshold. And then, you know, the ratio is all about, well, how much do you turn it down? So, if, so once the Smurf realizes it's too loud, if your ratio is two to one, then the Smurf will say, all right, I'm going to turn it down by half as much as it went above the threshold, right? And then attack and release is all about how quickly it does it. So it's, a, it's just sort of a, an example that I use to explain compression to my students. But I, it's, a way, it's a way of understanding it that seems to really click with people. Like, oh, it's just an automatic volume knob. 
And yeah, I could just imagine that there's this little Smurf inside the box that's just sort of riding the fader for me. And then you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, you could just imagine that every little piece of audio equipment is a little Smurf that's doing something for you. Like a gate is just a Smurf inside a box that's, you know, automating a mute button for you and muting something on and off. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and you can sort of keep going. You know, a, a dynamic EQ is just, you know, several Smurfs inside of a box that are operating a graphic EQ for you. And so, you know, that's, that's the thing. And, and actually, Yohai had me uh, kind of write that up in a little blog post for uh, <laughs> Sound Gym that they put out. And it's funny because I, I've been using this example with my students for years. And then one day I was over in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, at one of the many sort of souvenir trinket shops there. And I, they, I found this shelf in the shop that had little Smurf figures. Okay. You know? and Please tell me that you, you know, put one inside of a compressor. Uh, no, <laughs> but all there were all different Smurfs that you know, were doing different things. There was, I kid you not, I found a Smurf that was wearing headphones holding a boom mic. Yes, he's doing the thing. (laughs) And I was like, there he is, he's real. You know, I just, I thought I made him up, but he's real. There is actually a real sound person Smurf. And and so I I bought it and took it home and and, uh, I sits on my desk at work right now. And I had to show me students like, see, it's real. Mm -hmm. There really is a sound person Smurf. So I have a picture of that in the blog post for uh, Sound Gym. All right, Jason, a few short questions here to wrap us up. So what is one book that has been immensely helpful to you? <laughs> okay, so this is going to sound really awful, Uh-oh. but it is the book that I wrote. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that can be helpful and, to you, sure. And I say that because uh, when I started out teaching, I was just generally dissatisfied with a lot of the books that were out there. In fact, I mean, there was a time when, you know, I would actually sharpie out things in some of the books that my students would buy. Wow. <laughs> I, would say, I mostly agree with this book, but there are a couple of pages yeah. in this book that you should not it's redacted, read, yeah. right? Be- right? Because the information is wrong, you know, or or really misleading or something. And you know, I, I, after that went on and long enough, I just was like, man, you know, this is silly. And so I got. I, I told you earlier, I partnered with a computer scientist from Wake Forest University, and we wrote this book. And basically, I was trying to, you know write a book that, that I agreed with, right? Sure. <laughs> and mostly for my own purposes. I would never cared if anyone ever read it at all. Uh, we, got, we, we received grant funding to write it, and I still have yet to make enough money selling print copies of the book to actually buy a copy of the book myself. That's funny. Right? I, just, it, I haven't made enough money on it. But it's, it, is, it has been incredibly helpful to me because as a teacher, I was able to create all the things I needed. Right? It was like, here's a thing that I've been struggling to teach in a class. Let me now. I'm going to sit down and actually figure out how to do it. And I've got really smart people around. I've got a computer scientist and a really smart graduate student who can do anything. And and we're going to really figure it out, like game before feedback, yeah. right? Here's a concept I've struggled to teach. Let's figure out a really great way of doing it. And you know, I had a couple of really smart people, and we would create a very clear and simple way of teaching this concept. And we put it in the book, and we had the demos. And now it's like, okay, great. Now it's easy to teach. So so. Yes, my own book. I know, right? That's it. <laughs> that that being said, I think the 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 first kind of book that really resonated with me a lot when I was first studying sound design was uh, John Bracewell's book, which is got this really generic title, something like Sound Design in the Theater or something like that. And 
John was retired by the time I got around to looking at it. And he had to like send me, he had to print out a copy of the book and send it to me because I found out that it existed and it was out of print and everything. But what was so fascinating to me about it is that he covered everything. Like it was, it was the stuff we were talking about before about this broad based training. It wasn't just a book about, you know, the creative and artistic side of sound design. It wasn't just a technical manual. It was sort of like everything. It took you through the whole process from what is a a sound wave to, you know, you know, how do you put together a sound system to like, how do you analyze a script to what is a sound cue and how does it make sense in the context of a story? And I really, really like that book. If you can ever get a hold of it, uh, it doesn't like say it's been out of print for years and years and years, but it's, it's lovely and, and quite, quite good. Jason, where's the best place for people to follow your work? Probably the best place would be the YouTube page. Yeah. I, uh, I do have a website where I post kind of interesting projects that I've done here and there. Um, but with, and you can look at that. But I think the thing that people are most interested in is the YouTube page Mm -hmm. where I I just put recordings of all the classes I teach. All right, Jason. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sound Design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It features music by Jay Plenio. You can find more of their music at pixabay.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Ross, Learn Stage Lighting, John Scott, Pedro Rob, Martin, Rody Free Radio, Joel Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Terry Nicholas, Kuba Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.